as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are invited to get out of our cloak of fear and proclaim the gospel in ways that bring life to the people of God. This is not an easy calling. The prophets did not get a pass at the difficulty of calling for justice for the oppressed. Jesus did not get a pass at the difficulty of proclaiming the gospel for the least of these, the gospel that will set the people free. You were just listening to Pastor Bobby Mesingwa once again. Uh, one of his sermons that he recently preached at Maximo Presbyterian Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. And Pastor Bobby is back once again as a guest on the PastorCast. Well, grace and peace, everybody. It's Pastor Leon Bloder, and this is the PastorCast podcast. And welcome to part two of the conversation that I recently had with Pastor Bobby Masingwa, lead pastor of Maximo Presbyterian Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, and uh, Pastor Bobby also grew up in South Africa under apartheid. And so uh, for those of you who were listening in in the last podcast, uh, we ended the conversation on that podcast with uh, Bobby reflecting on what it's like to uh, live under an oppressive government uh, that you believe uh, is targeting you. And so that was the question that I had for Bobby. Uh, what was it like growing up uh, in uh, an oppressive white government uh, that he believed wanted him dead? Uh, and I asked him to reflect on that, to reflect on his time uh, spent there growing up and what it means to him today. This is what he had to say. Yeah, it was uh, 1976, June 16. Today, today is June 17. So yesterday it was a holiday and National Youth Day in South Africa. Remembering what happened when young people students decided to protest peacefully yeah against white supremacy you could say that and uh and they were singing dancing i mean the way we did protest in our case man we sing we dance and we rock yeah <laughs> there's a lot of hope in there yeah those guys those police we're standing there when they give you five minutes to disperse. We think, uh, what are they afraid of? We're just kids. And then they start with tear gas. And then they go with rubber bullets. And then they go with real guns. So that day they killed quite a lot. The first kid they killed was Hector Peterson. And he was carried by uh, Mbuyisa. And his sister, Hector's, Hector was 13 years old. Uh, so Hector was dying in the arm of this man who was screaming and running. And next to him was uh, Antoinette, the sister of Hector. She was screaming. She was going like... <sighs> so Sam Zima took a picture 
And that picture went around the world to show the horror of apartheid. And Time magazine considered that picture to be one of 100 most influential pictures of all time. Yeah. You know, but it showed kids, a kid who was shot and killed, and another kid trying to help that kid, and the sister of the dying kid running. They were all in school uniform, mm. like good Roman Catholic schools in America. But out yeah. there, black students had to buy their uniform and pay for their books, pay for tuition. You know, there was affirmative action in South Africa for white people. Mm. And there is affirmative action in the world for white people. Right. They just are not acknowledging it. That's true. Yeah, I mean... You know, the white people are given a, a leg up. So uh, part of why white people are surprised about this is because they think when we talk about race, they think, oh, black people or people of color. Mm -hmm. When in fact, race is created by white people. Yeah. Making us respond to it. And when we respond to it, then... Uh, were labeled problems. Right. Problematize, they problematize black people. Yeah, which is what you see happening now with, you know, folks who are, who were, were not, they were reacting more about broken windows and about right. stolen tennis shoes and things like that. that that's what a lot of people were focused on and that's what the you know well i mean you know that's what a lot of politicians want you to focus on mm -hmm. rather than the fact that a, a man was killed <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean it's, like it's, that, it's, that he died and then you know subsequent it is self-serving it is self-serving yeah if people's anger can be focused on the looters right then it gives people reason not to address the underlying issue of racism mm. and system, systemic racism and structural racism. Why? Because now we can focus on the looting action, the rioting action of the protesters. When in fact, all protests that I've attended, all of them, are created right from the beginning to be peaceful. Yep. You know, all of, and I've, I've, I've attended a lot of protests and they're created right, right from the beginning to be peaceful. And then you will, you will have marshals who try to make sure there is no broken property because we know that our message will be hijacked if there is looting, you know, because white folks will focus, will worry more about broken windows than broken necks of black people. If you look at the New York Times bestsellers list from the past couple of weeks, it has been dominated by books about racial injustice. And there does seem to be a bit of a different feel about this particular moment in history. I asked Bobby if he felt the same way, or what he thought about that, about what was different and why it might be different. 
And this is what he had to say. Yeah, I think uh, it, it does feel different. Uh, it feels different because one, we have been sheltered in place mm -hmm. for a long time. People have been anxious for a long time. And COVID-19 has been killing people, more than 100,000 Americans here. Yep. More than 2 million affected. COVID-19 kills you by depriving you of oxygen. Mm. Wow. You can't breathe. Wow. So there is a pandemic that is killing people, black, white, anyone. And the, the, the majority of, I mean, the people who are most affected are people of color. Black people are dying disproportionately from COVID-19. We can't breathe. When COVID-19 yes. attacks us, we can't breathe. Yes. And the structural system here, a lot of people don't have access to, they don't have insurance or it's like, listen, in the United States, a lot of people will complain if there is, there are resources that are, are spent. If $1 of their taxes is helping black people, mm, yep. white people will throw a fit. They'd rather see $400 billion go to farmers in the Midwest, white farmers, and not a single person will raise hell about it. Yeah. But give a few pennies to a single mother, black mother, who's raising kids, and you will hear about it infinitely. And I hear it from some people in my churches, previous churches, all the time, yeah. complaining about the little people who are sucking the system. Yep. Taking $200 from the system. Oh yeah. $400, I mean, $400 million, billion to the farmers, you know, with the trade war, $26 billion to go prop up the farmers. No one will complain. Why? There's white privilege. They're white. Nobody complains if their tax dollars are helping white people. But if tax dollars are helping black people, People complain. So as a result, the resources such as health insurance, people threw a fit when Obamacare came because it was also going to help black people. Yeah. They wouldn't say it that way. There is an element of racism there. That's true. You know? So when COVID-19 comes and it's killing us, and we can't breathe, we can't do a whole lot about it except run away and lock ourselves up. Yeah. Then we are reminded when we saw that video shot by a 17 year old, brave young lady who refused to budge. Right. To bear witness to the other pandemic. Yeah.
you know, you may be dealing with one pandemic. We're dealing with at least two. Yeah. And a whole lot more, including poverty and all others. Um, stuff that we could literally fix. Who knew the United States could print out $2.2 trillion and give it away in two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they did. And two weeks after two weeks, nothing is left. They say, okay, we need another stimulus. What happened yeah. to the other one? Well, uh, the, the the Lakers took it. Uh, this took it. This oh, yeah. <laughs> millions because they they have lawyers, they have lobbies, they have people who are ready to file and take the money. Even our newspaper here, Tampa Bay Times, they got like more than eight million dollars. I said, huh? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So, and nobody, people are not complaining. I suppose you know, like I say, if tax dollars are helping white people, not a whole lot of complaining. But if they go to black folks, there's a whole lot of groaning, forgetting that black folks gave more than two hundred years of free labor. Yeah, forced labor without pay. But white grievances, white grievances all this time is really sickening. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had this to say to his white siblings in the Christian church. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the secular and the sacred. I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. I told Bobby that one of the things that I think keeps white pastors and white church leaders from speaking is a fear of being seen as too political or too focused on social issues, just like Dr. King mentioned. And I also feel like that some white pastors and some white church leaders also feel ill-equipped. And I told him that, that that's how I felt, that I felt like I didn't have a leg to stand on to talk about these issues because I hadn't really been engaged before. And so I asked him if he would be willing to comment on that and also to share what kind of guidance or wisdom that he would have for his white siblings within the Christian church. And this is what he had to say. But Leon, you are presuming that I would go and speak 
freely. You and I worked in this committee of the General Assembly, and we sent out, you know, officers, I mean, we took officers, we sent out directives for the church to study and to adopt an anti-racist stance. We did. Yeah, we voted on it and we agreed, and that was four years ago. And you... Uh, so you are saying, uh, uh, you know, you didn't really have uh, a lot of courage to 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 implement that as much. And I say, yeah, me too. And I was the vice moderator of that, and I presided on that. It was, it's not easy to implement. You, be, why? Because we're afraid of offending white people in our congregation. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they become, they become de- uh, defensive. They do. And, even in my office sometimes, um, everywhere. Uh, I am here to say it was not easy for me. I started doing that just late, uh, recently, not long ago. And I have a white pastor, a retired pastor, say, you got to teach people about racism. I'm thinking, you kidding me? They're going to kill me. <laughs> They're going to throw me and send me back to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they'll, they'll buy the ticket and ship me back. You know? <laughs> Why should it be my burden to teach white people about racism? Because you know they created it, so let them learn on their own. Yeah. You know. So I say the error of us being afraid of speaking about this elephant in the room has come to an end. Yes. Because at this point, we realize this is a pandemic that's been with us. And you and I, when we were in that committee, the Social Witness Committee, we studied about this, including the foundation of the doctrine of foundation. Yep. That says the church itself originated this issue of racism, giving white Christians the right to go into all the world and and seize those lands. Yeah. And seize the resources. And they say, and if there are people there who claim that that is their land, you must tell them that your standard of living does not reach to the standard of European living. Right. That is white supremacy there, meaning everybody else is lower standard, therefore must be governed by Europeans and enslave them. The church gave sanctions to that. We, in our committee, we sent out a motion to apologize. We did. uh, To the Native Americans, because the Presbyterian church took, took, Native American children, and we put them in boarding schools, in Presbyterian boarding schools, so that we will make them good little white Indians. Yeah. That is, or European, that, that is give them Euro, European education and deprive them of their culture and give them this superior culture that comes from Europe. We did it. So in 2016, remember? Yeah. 2016. 2016, we issued an apology. That was about 400 years late. It was. <laughs> well, and I mean, you think about our own denomination, the fact that we were separated after the Civil War until 1983. 
You're right. No, it was it was still separated uh, because and the civil war was about what? <laughs> oh, it was about states' rights, Bobby. You should know that, right? <laughs> you know, I, I first heard I heard about that when I came to America. I said, yeah, they were fighting against slavery. Uh, for and against slavery, they said no, it was states' rights. I didn't know what that was. was it? Yeah, that's not it's what I heard. States' uh, rights to define yeah. what property is. Yeah, that's so, what it comes down to, right? And so that, yeah, it's it's it was it, it, it was simply fighting uh, for the fact that white people want to have the right to free labor from black people. Right. We don't want to be paying them. We want them to work for free for us so we can get rich. And we, we can't say it that way because it sounds evil and morally bankrupt, so we'll call it states' rights. Right. And this is in the Presbyterian family, then it's split north and south, and it didn't get back together until 1983. asked Bobby if he had anything that he could say to uh, his white siblings within the Christian church, what would he say? What, what advice would he give on how to move forward and how to be different and what to make of this entire situation? And this is what he said. I'll tell them there's hope. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell them there is hope. Why? Because we are Christians and as Christians... Uh, we we believe in a God who who, who forgives us, mm. uh, who seeks for us to reconcile with one another and with God. Uh, and that is ne- it's not too late. Yeah. You know, it was not too late for the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> We've apologized for 400 years late, but we still apologize. <laughs> you and I, we were part of that group that raised our hand. I. I did. <laughs> Sorry. Do, you, do you apologize? I. <laughs> 400 I, years later, yeah. and, and I'm a black man <laughs> apologizing for what some white folks did 400 years ago. <laughs> That is ironic. And I was the one presiding with the with the, with the government. We we must apologize. Somehow we must see our sin. Yes. And apologize, and say we will not allow this type of sin to continue because racism is a sin. Yes. And to live. And to support racism is to support a sin. Yeah. The the World Alliance of Reformed Churches in 1982 declared in Ottawa, in their General Assembly in Ottawa, that apartheid, which is racism, is a sin. Earlier, the World Council of Churches has said racism is a sin. So the councils of the church have been acknowledging that racism is a sin. But that message needs to filter down to the ordinary person who sits on the pew to understand that racism is a sin and does not belong 
in church. Right. Because it works against the plan of God. The plan of God is to gather all of God's children into God's loving arms again. Yeah. To gather all of God's creation. Jesus came with a mission of gathering. And we saw it also on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down to gather all of God's people. And it was the expression was in many different languages. Right. And there were all these people who had come from different nations who yeah. were in Jerusalem and they recognized people speaking in Zulu with a Galilean accent. <laughs> yeah. I was speaking in Venda or Corsa in Galilean accent. And yeah. these Galileans. <laughs> That's right. But God was on the move trying to gather God's children into God's self. So we have hope. We yeah. have been given a chance to become partners in this enterprise. Yeah. You know, God, God has not said, hey, you all suck. You're out. <laughs> That's a good God thing, says, right? God says, come. Yeah. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and are heavy laden. Yeah. And I will give you rest. Oh, man, that preaches right there. Yeah, man, that's Jesus who said that. Yeah. You know, because by ourselves, we cannot lift up this burden of sin. So we do need the intervention of God Almighty. Um, and we have access to that intervention. Mm -hmm. You know, through prayer, through study, through reflection, through working together, and through reaching out. In John chapter 17, the entire book is a prayer. Yeah. It's Jesus praying, and the essence of it is that the disciples will be one. Yes. So that prayer was said 2,000 years ago. You know, you and I sometimes pray to God and our prayers feel like they're not answered. Right. But we're reminded that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago and his prayer is not answered. He's been <laughs> sitting there unanswered <laughs> because we're working against the answering of that prayer. Yes. So racism works against the answering of Jesus' prayer that called for all of God's children to be one. Yes. And who are you to work against Jesus's prayer request? Oof. Oof. Man, see right there? There's mm. a lot of Christians, man, that, that, that need to hear that, right? Because, yeah. you know. Yeah, racism works against Jesus's prayer does. request. Absolutely. When your prayer request is not answered, it hurts. Yeah. So when Jesus' prayer request is not answered, it hurts. It hurts him. Yes. Because it was a fervent prayer to God that, uh, by Jesus that 
my disciples be, be one. And they put the entire chapter of John 17 as a prayer request. Yeah. Man, that preaches right there. I'm probably going to steal that. <laughs> You're welcome, man. <laughs> I stole it from the Gospel of John. <laughs> One of the many things that I've always loved about Bobby is the fact that he constantly looks to hope. He looks to resurrection, even in the midst of some of the worst things that he's experienced and all that he has seen throughout his entire life including his experiences under apartheid in South Africa. And so as kind of a period or an exclamation point to the end of our conversation, Bobby had some more to say about what it meant to live in hope, even in the worst of circumstances. And listen, man, this has been wonderful. I appreciate um, your invitation to me to come and speak. Thank you. And uh, I just say, go and preach the hope that was given to us as a gift yeah. by Jesus. We're not hopeless. We are not hopeless. No. Sometimes we act like we're hopeless. In South Africa, listen, I lived less than 20 miles from, I think it was five or six nuclear bombs that were created to kill black people. Mm. And near my house was a, a shooting range where white boys who were conscripted into the army came to, to practice. They practiced 24-7. So it must have been waves of white boys. Uh, so I grew up with gunshots every, every day, 24-7. Mm. So when white children were having beautiful lullabies, for me, the lullaby was uh, the machine gun. Yeah. I only noticed that when I left that place to go to the village for my high school, when I came back, I said, oh my God, what is this? You know, because in the village, it was quiet. Yeah. So when I came back, my, my silence was disturbed. Right. But that, sound, but that sound was ubiquitous. It was there all the time, oppressing us. This was the system that will keep whites in power. Right. And, and, yet, and yet we were not hopeless. Right. Uh, we knew that we were going to win. The, the weaponry that the white minority government hand was quite astounding. But we believe that we're Christians and all we need is to have that hope in Jesus Christ that will sustain us even as we were burying our own children. Wow. We would bury them. I buried my youth pastor. I actually put the dirt the democratic government has recognized him. There was a truth and reconciliation that came out. Yes. Where people will go and have to tell the truth. Yeah. What happened? And when you listened, it was shown on TV, you'll see this white 
men. They look like elders in the church. They're in their suits and they look good. You put them on mute, they just look like ordinary people on Sunday. And then you, li you, you listen to the sound, then you hear them, what they were saying, what they were doing in killing black people. Yeah. It, it was pretty horrific and shocking. And yet, they would be, once they told the whole story, they would be given a chance to be forgiven. Mm. You know, Eckhart College, there were students who left to go to South Africa. They went and worked in the Amy Beale Foundation. Amy Beale was an American woman who was going to help in the uh, preparation for democracy in South Africa. She was killed in the township when she was giving a ride to her black colleagues. Hmm. She was killed by these boys, you know, say, oh, white person, white person, and they killed her. So those boys was, were arrested and sent to jail. And when the Truth Commission came, they, like others, applied to be forgiven. Amy's parents flew from America to go and support those killers. Yeah. And so when these students from Eckhart College came back, they said, yes, we worked in the Amy Bill Foundation. And uh, the staff members, some of the staff members were the ones who killed Amy. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. That you is know, I'm a good man, but if somebody killed my daughter, I don't know if I will hire them to be on staff. I for, know. For, a, for my daughter's foundation. Yeah. So the, the, the level of reconciliation that is required is extremely difficult, but it's got to be done for healing to happen. Well, and so, so it will be like, it will be like the Judge Floyd Foundation going to support the parole of Derek Chauvin. Wow. And after he's paroled and nobody wants to hire him, oh, they, 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 they hire him and he becomes a staff member in the George Floyd Foundation. Yeah, so the, the, the love of God we're talking about is very radical. Yeah. We're too fragile for that. We are. That's why we need God. Do not fear, says the Lord. Work for the day when all of God's children of all stripes, cultures, backgrounds, and sexual orientation will see the glory of the Lord. Let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. In the name of God the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All praise be to God. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for the Pastor Cast. I also want to thank Reverend Bobby Masingwa for being my guest and for all of the great wisdom that he was able to share with us. And we'll be continuing this series 
Uh, the next episode is going to feature uh, Reverend Daryl Horton, uh, who is a pastor uh, here in Austin. Uh, and I uh, can't wait to be talking to him. We're going to continue these conversations on racial injustice as part of the Pastor Cast. We'll see you next time.